Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Mario Taiji, and today we are talking to Mario Ubiali. Mario is an entrepreneur who has over 20 years of experience in innovative companies, globally scaling from startup to SMEs. He's the founder and CEO of Timus and has brought to this venture his passion for innovation, the desire to impact the future of food systems, and a love for the intersection between cultural studies and hard science. Today, Timus is increasingly becoming a recognized force in food tech through their work in creating neuroscience-based gastronomic experiences to convert people to sustainable habits. How Mario, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show with us today. How are you doing? Hello, Maria. It's great pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm doing fine. It's a little bit of a great day today in Northern Italy, but, you know, sunshine uh, is coming through your voice and thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Mario. You know, let's begin from the beginning. What's the story behind Timus? What drove you into that journey? Um, the story about Timus is, is an interesting one because as many things that happen in, in life, both personally and entrepreneurship-wise, they happen apparently just by a series of different chances and choices. So I came to be interested in the Timus project uh, in 2016 when a friend of mine at the time who was involved in psychology and neuroscience basically came to me and said, you know, I do think there's a great opportunity for innovative entrepreneurship in this field. And he knew that I was coming from my background in, in innovative entrepreneurship and I was looking for a new project. And you could say I came to Timus as an investor. And then fast forward to 2023, uh, the person who suggested the idea is no longer with the company since three years, but I'm still there and I'm still enjoying every single day. So. Um, you know, I always joke and I say, I came for the investment, but I stayed for the passion. Uh, and uh, I am a humanities uh, person in terms of my training. And uh, I was coming from a different industry. Uh, but I think the story is that once I got drawn into the world of what cultural neuroscience could do for the future of the planet and, and, and the way we look at the future of food, I really did get a, a strong sense of, of purpose. And I guess that's really the core of the story for me with Timus is a love story for a purpose. So let's get the, the, our listeners on the same page here. I'm pretty sure many people don't know what cultural neuroscience means. And for sure, you know, they wouldn't guess how it helps you understand people's relationship with food. Could we cover that? And we can cover that. And hopefully we're going to make it, if not fun, at least interesting and not too boring. So, yeah, yes. you know, as a teacher would, would say, try to explain it to us as you would to a loved one, like imagine your mother on the other side of the room. How, how, how would you explain her that? I will definitely try to do that. Actually, I have a, a, a son uh, who is uh, 12 and a half years old. So... I often sit at the table with him talking about what I do for a living, and I think it's great exercise. So let me try to be, awesome. um, well, you know, I hope clear and, and uh, understandable. Cultural neuroscience is, as you can tell from the fact that it's two words coming together, 
cultural neuroscience is the combination of two things, uh, a consideration for the identity of, of humans, so who they are as individuals, as a group, culturally, where they come from, uh, the, their history, their taste, their education level, and so forth. And then there is this other magical word, which is neuroscience, and it's always a, a fascinating, but yet sometimes a little threatening word. And the word of neuroscience is also very complex. Let's maybe provide a simple, direct example. We work mostly with food. So imagine that you are using cultural neuroscience to better understand how humans interact with a specific piece of food. Let's take something that is very straightforward as an example. We are sitting down at the table and we're eating a burger. I'm sitting down, I am eating a burger. What is that cultural neuroscience does? Well, first of all, we put physically on the head of a human who is consuming food, a device that is called electroencephalogram. What that device does is something magical and sometimes almost unbelievable. It digitizes the mental processes of humans as they go about the experience. Again, tough words, we can explain better. We can digitize and record certain key elements of what's going on in your brain while you eat the burger. So we can know how relaxed you are, we can know how you are drawn into the experience or repulsed by the experience, we can know whether you are engaged, whether the, the food you're eating is familiar to you or not. All of that can be measured by digitizing the brain activity with the EEG. Now, this is the, the neuroscience part of what we do. The cultural part of what we do is that it's not enough to collect that data. You collect that data and you look at these signals coming from the brain. How do you know whether what you're seeing is good or bad? How do you know why people are feeling relaxed or engaged? You try to explain that by taking the data from neuroscience and putting together with cultural. Now you're asking yourself, can there be an explanation on why Northern Italians between 40 and 50 love their pasta in a different way than a person from Brazil would interact with their pasta? Cultural neuroscience is a new way, is a multidisciplinary way to explain the what, the how, and most of all, the why of human emotion in food. That's super, super interesting, Mario. Let's so. <laughs> Really good explanation as well. And just a probably very ignorant question. So when you're measuring, can you also identify if a certain food experience is activating like our memory? Yes, you can. There are uh, different ways of doing that. For example, uh, there is a mental state that is uh, known to indicate while you eat a certain level of familiarity with what you eat. Familiarity with what you eat, what is it? In very practical terms is the fact that you have or don't have a previous memory of that food. Something that is extremely familiar to, be, to you instantly and implicitly activates your memory. Therefore, when you eat it, you can observe from the EEG that your level of familiarity is high and that your brain is not doing a lot of work 
to really recognize what you're eating. So, you know, again, I'll go with the typical Italian example. I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with the dish of pasta, any pasta. So when I sit down and I see the pasta in my plate, and that's where it really gets interesting, the visual recognition is already triggering my memory of it. I know what it is. My brain loves to recognize food because biologically we have been trained by evolution to make sure that we do recognize food because there has been a time and a very long time in our history as humans where our brain was looking at food in a different way than we do look at food now. We were just trying not to get poisoned, not to die out of eating something wrong. And all of that is still with us. So we like familiar food and yes, we can measure familiarity and therefore we can measure whether food activates memories. There is another way to also measure that with neuroscience and that is observing the local activation of certain parts of the brain which are traditionally associated in neuroscience with being the area of the brain where memories reside, so to speak. So by, by what you just, just explained, it's clear to me how culture um, impacts the way that we experience food. But they, taking this to your work, and you naturally have to account those cultural um, differences. When it comes to our research, I imagine how hard it is considering how global the world is today and how diversity is playing a role here. So how is Timos accounting for all those differences when doing um, specific research? Well, of course, you already said it, Maria, and it's very well said. The challenge in food is understanding diversity and complexity. And by the way, this topic of, of complexity and diversity is in fact leading us also in our thinking on the future of food because we have to, if we accept the idea of the complexity of food experiences on a cultural basis, it goes without saying that then we have to draw the conclusion that the future of food will need to be diverse, will need to be adapted to different humans and different cultures and places in the world. But that's kind of me being political already, and we'll get there maybe later in the conversation, just to, just to stay with your lovely question. Um, so how do we account for those, those elements of diversity? This is where the, the cultural part of our research goes. Number one, we collect a lot of information from the, the human beings who we are collecting data on. So it doesn't It's not enough to actually record brain activity. Every time we carry out research, people taking part in the research are asked many, many explicit questions upfront in a very articulated survey. So that in the end, we start having more information, not just about their age, their gender, their education level. It gets a little more interesting than that. For example, you can administer a questionnaire to rate people in a scale that is called neophobia scale. So for example, you can understand how much people are resisting the idea of trying new food. Or you can ask them about their food involvement, how important is food in their lives. Now, so on one end, we account for diversity by asking a lot of targeted questions so that we get a lot of explicit variables on, on people we are researching in their relationship with food. On the other hand, there is another way 
of accounting for diversity that is a little deeper, if you will. So not always you are allowed to do that in specific corporate projects, but very often we do that in pure research projects. That is, for example, ethnography. So you actually sit down with people and literally have a two hour, three hour, four hour conversation about various aspects of the relationship with food. And you can characterize that as being your way of also accounting for diversity. Last but not least, maybe interesting for our audience today. Hopefully nobody's going to get super scared for this, but there are abundant pieces of evidence in science that indicate that our relationship with food is dictated also by epigenetics and gene networks. So in the near future, accounting for diversity in our research on humans and food will always also include consideration for epigenetic and genetic factors in different populations. And of course, we're absolutely not talking about good or bad. We're just talking about the, the human diversity across the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, when I picture all this process, it, it just sounded to me like a very, very complex process, right? You have all those, you're, you're first, you're, you're able to, 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 through technology, measure, measure the brain activities. Then you have to have all the context. You have this uh, research. You, you just mentioned that you, you talk to people for two to three hours. How do you envision that in the future, being able to, to scale this solution? Uh, because I, I can, I can, I cannot imagine the amount of data needed, so you can scale that without the need of having those interactions, because the diversity is just too too huge, right? So how do you envision that? Wow, that's you know question that deserves a lot of time to answer, but wonderful question, and certainly it's the one question that keeps us at, up at night, you know, in terms of developing yeah. the Timus project and the direction we're going. A few answers that come together to answer the main question. First of all, um, you said it, this is a job for multiple data sets to come together. So the success of cultural neuroscience is rooted in the assumption that you can successfully correlate information that is coming from genetics, social habits, culture, and then, you know, behavior and then EEG data. So we are super lucky. Maria, piece of good news. We live in the age of artificial intelligence. So the first answer to your question is that this being a big data driven kind of research, we believe that scalability of our model in becoming even predictive of human behavior with food will be actually a function of deploying tools that were not available in human history prior to the present age. So what we do is enabled by something that is unique to the present moment, luckily enough. Then there is another answer that is more practical. In June of, of 2023, in about three and a half months from now, we will be launching a scalable platform that will be distributed to licensees, companies, stakeholders, universities who have a desire to collect data on humans interacting with food. We will provide them with the hardware, with the software, with the cloud-based pipelines to analyze data. 
that is our intent as in the business model to disseminate enough of our technology across the planet so that eventually this will create a very large funnel that will converge into the largest world database on neurophysiological data on humans interacting with food. At which point we go back to answer number one, making sense of that data together with information about the individuals, their demographics and all the other scales will be a matter of data processing capability, which is unique to, of course, the present moment in which we're living. So scalability will come through a combination of technological dissemination and also data processing capability. Yes, makes sense. And what a challenge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to report, though, that um, sometimes we are not allowed to name names, but I'm glad to say in general terms that this technology is being currently actively embraced by very large food players in CPG and ingredients and flavors globally. So uh, I see it happening. It's very encouraging. Uh, we've been in touch and actively working on research with several academic partners. I think it's coming, you know, it's as the founder yeah. of the company, after seven years of doing this, uh, I have a sense that um, this is the time and, and it's very, yeah. it's very exciting. Um, yeah. There's a very thin line between being a visionary and being hallucinating, you know? So sometimes <laughs> you wonder as an entrepreneur, like, you know, why is not everybody else doing it? And sometimes you ask yourself. Yeah, no, but, but that's what you said, is, is the time now. Maybe a couple of, of years ago, you were just ahead of your time and now, now, now the time is right, right? And I think so. So, so let's, let's uh, get deeper in, into what just you're saying that, you know, companies are using more and are adopting more do, those, those type of studies. How does your work uh, challenge or complement the traditional approaches to nutrition and dietetics? Um, I, I think our work complements mostly the work that has been done already by large companies in, in nutrition and in, in general terms on, on evolving food in a, in a direction, for example, that is more sustainable even in nutritional and dietary terms. Why do I say I think it's complementing? It's because companies are actively seeking solutions for humans that would be, whilst they are healthier, they're also emotionally engaging, right? So let's go back one step and clarify this. The work that we do is about the food emotion in humans. We measure the food emotion in humans, right? We bring it up to the surface so that companies can look at data about it. They can have data to say, hey, look, my product is producing this set of emotions or processes. Now, doing that, why is it useful for the future of nutrition, for example, is that you can ask any company right now, they are all very aware that they need to come up with products that are more accessible in terms of economics. We live in an age of inflation and everybody's talking about successful reformulation to contain cost. Everybody's concerned about health, so we don't want a generation of obese children and so Obviously, companies are looking for those solutions, but we tend to forget that what we eat at home every single day is also dictated by hedonic pleasure. We take pleasure in what we eat. Now, when you try to put those three things and pack them in the same box, what you end up having is how do I maintain a good level of emotion and I make a product that is cheaper and healthier? Now, this is where we complement what companies are doing because we're helping them 
making sure that they're still giving the same level of emotion and engagement and pleasure to consumers and humans whilst they do a better job at nutrition and, 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 the, and the diet. And, and, you know, when you tackle that topic, there's a lot of pre, I want to say preconceived ideas where large global companies are usually depicted as being an extension of, of evil. Um, I, you know, we work daily with large food companies. Are they perfect? No. And I think we all share that notion, but does it mean that we are not supposed to be working to make what they do better? Absolutely not. Again, we have to stay within the system if we want to have an impact on the system. And, and uh, I get very passionate about this because we get that conversation very often. And I want to say, there's nothing wrong in bringing the emotion of food to the system because the system needs to take into consideration emotion. And talking about it in intellectual circles is not going to help. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. And uh, that reminds me when we first uh, talked that we were talking about all those developments that we're seeing and investments in, in making food more sustainable, but on the same time having people accept it. So, you know, we have, we are seeing all those investments into alternative foods and plant-based and lab-based and and we kind of criticize you know the way that those investments are made and and how how those startups are actually able to to track the impact and to develop versus understanding more human behavior so what do you think that is missing from this industry's understanding of the mechanisms behind what drives humans to relate this food? Because my understanding is that it completely relates to what you're working on now and how you are trying to make an impact in the food industry, right? Totally, yes. And thank you, Maria. Again, amazing topic and question. Um, how do I think we could have an impact and why should they care is... Let's start from the other way around. If you look at the way novel food is introduced currently in the, in, in the market and also in, to a certain extent in the public debate, uh, most of the language that you find, you find in newspapers, you find on the internet, you find in the media in general, is always language about technology. I don't know if you kind of noticed that, but you know, we can cultivate meat thanks to modern technology. We can do plant-based because we have this advanced technology to do micro-fermentation and work with fungi and do this and do that. And, and the general semantics are always technology and money, money and technology. And, and that combination, by the way, and, you know, I'm not a ludist and I'm not a Marxist, so I'm not saying we can be outside of that system. All I'm saying is to your question, what is it missing? What is missing is that in the equation of utilizing money and technology, theoretically, the starting point should be the need. So what, what need am I trying to fulfill? My very humble opinion, please let's not generalize, of course. There are companies who are doing amazing work, of course. But my point of view is that what we do at Timus should be a little more in the center of the product development equation because a lot of companies are not really deploying the right tools to understand the expectation of humans. 
So let's give the most simple, the simplest example, alternative meat, right? So we do cultivated meat and the profits of cultivated meats, they have great arguments. It can reduce animal cruelty, the environmental impact. You can disseminate so that people can have meat uh, in areas of the world where it's not easy to have it, blah, blah, blah. All good and all okay. Then they tell you, okay, so because that's the objective, here is the solution. A bioreactor, a series of technologies, a lot of money. Fast forward to 2030, $1.6 billion business on cultivated meat. What is missing? If you stop for a second and you think, and you ask yourself, you know what's missing? The question about, yeah, what are humans exactly seeing in meat? When a human eats meat, what's going on? Why are we eating meat? What do we feel when we eat meat? What is the role that meat has for me that I grew up in Northern Italy in a family who would do their own cured meats in a farm versus you, and I don't know your history, but maybe you never even saw, I don't know, pork meat for 20 years in your life. The question should be, what is that we're trying to do with technology and money? What is the need that we're trying to answer? And you know, Maria, I hate to say, not because I disagree with the point, but it's definitely not enough to say, let's make this product so we can save the planet. This will not happen unless humans in different cultures and places in the world will repeatedly change their habits and go out to the supermarket or any other place every single day and buy that product. Change goes through adoption. Adoption is not, and I repeat, not dictated by rational motives. That's the reason why the work of Timus is so essential, because we don't talk about rational motives. We measure the emotional, the implicit and the cultural reasons why people do things. If we don't put that back in the center of the equation, we're designing solutions for an ideal that doesn't exist. An excessively rational human being. And, you know, I dare say that humans, if humans were as rational as we expect them to be, would we have what we have now? The climate crisis, the war in Ukraine, uh, 60 migrants eating, drowning off the coast of Italy 24 hours ago. I mean, this is what we're looking at. We have to accept that human complexity can be studied. But if we don't put it back into the center of the product development equation, nothing will really happen. And, you know, you do have some very interesting case studies uh, to, to picture that. Uh, can you share with our listeners? I thought they were so, so interesting. Well, the one that comes to mind since we were talking about replacing um, animal proteins is a yeah. recent study that we carried out um, last year in collaboration with Kilometre Zero Hub in, in Spain. Our friends at Kilometre Zero are strong proponents of what we do and great partners and supporters in this kind of research. So picture this. Last year we went to Spain and we chose a group of um, flexitarian but still fairly conservative consumers. And we told them that we would have asked them to come to a place and that they would be expected to uh, taste different burgers. So what were these different burgers? Uh, three of these burgers were 100% plant-based burgers, which were already available in supermarkets in Spain. 
One of them was 100% animal protein. But one of them, more interestingly, was a blended burger. 50% meat and 50% plant-based. Now, a little preface to this study, Maria, is that a few years back, I was attending a conference in California and we were talking about the future of meat and everything. And I made the mistake in a group of discussion uh, to mention that I, I was like asking the stupid question, why don't we try to maybe create products that are transitional products that would have part plant and part animal so that people can get accustomed to it. And what you get is you get from day one, you get a reduction in, in meat consumption right off the bat, right? And at the time, two and a half years ago, I was met with incredulous stares, especially in California, as you can imagine. So just by saying that your label has been an ultra conservative person. And uh, so fast forward to this study in Spain, this group of, of consumers comes into the place and in a blind tasting, so with no context, no information, they start tasting in randomized order, these burgers. In the results, we noticed a number of things. The two that, that I think are more interesting for this conversation are the following. The first thing that we noticed was by far the more consistent and the, the most successful product was the blended burger. So right there you have something that tells you that there is hope to create transitional products. And I believe the, the, the takeaway from that was humans the brain of humans functions by familiarity. We do not like overnight revolutions. You know, we live in a society that keeps telling us, oh, disruptive, disruptive, this is disruptive. That the truth is history, nature and humans, you know, in Latin, they say you don't jump, you know, non facit saltus. Well, sorry for the uh, bookworm kind of quote here. But so the brain liked the blended product. Number one insight in that study, super interesting. The second insight that we did get was that in general terms, the plant-based burgers had a huge problem of expectation versus reality. What that meant was that we could observe that when people were presented with the burger, they saw it and they smelled it, everything was working totally fine. There was a certain sense of expectation. Going back to our previous part of the conversation, this was memory. I'm looking at something and this thing to me is a burger. So I'm like, there's a whole part of my brain that is already like, oh, fantastic. I know what this is. I'm going to enjoy this. And then when, when it went into their mouth, the plant-based very often is problematic in terms of aftertaste, in terms of texture, juiciness, and, and stuff like that. Well, we could observe that the brain was disappointed, was basically going through this phase of, mm, this is cognitive dissonance. I'm expecting something, I'm getting something else. So that study for us was a turning point because we were able to, to have arguments based on a scientific approach to tell companies out there, there are other ways of thinking of a food revolution. And one other way of thinking of a food revolution is to be gradual, to do something that humans would be comfortable with. And this is where neuroscience can greatly help and cultural neuroscience in particular, because we need and to- And that's major, change. it's major, right, Mario? Because basically it turns this transition 
more economically feasible. The adoption is faster. Um, so it's, 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 uh, for me, it was really, um, <laughs> really interesting to, 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 to know. And it's clear to me how the industry could benefit from, from, you know, having this type of studies based in their R&D phase and, and, and whatever, when going to test out and really the production and it completely changes the way the investments should go, right? I and, think and, and, so. I think so. And there is a problem though, which is if you want to be realistic, we all work in the, you know, we all know the reality of the world. The reality of the world is also that the typical global large food company today, when it's very good as a company, takes between 12 and 18 months to create and launch a product. So in the world of food systems right now, Maria, you have this crazy tension where the company, companies who are more sensitive to change and want to and need to react to change are the bigger ones because they have this global platform and they understand and they collect a lot of information and they understand the trends and they have budgets and they're ex really dedicated to R&D and development. But the paradox is these companies who have that kind of sensitivity and the means are also the slower to make the impact, to make things happen because of the way they're so gigantic and structured. On the other hand, you have the startups who are a lot more agile, but sometimes they are rushed. They are pushed by a certain investor's logic to only stick to one solution because that's their mantra, because that's their product identity. And so I know it's going to sound a little paradoxical, but I like, I'd like to propose this to our listeners, which is I'd love for them to think that maybe startups in the present food system are actually less free than the big global companies. And they're less free because they're so pushed by a financial driven logic and by a slogan oriented kind of bottom line that they rarely can really allow themselves to be complex about the solution. But on the same time, when you talk about those big corporations, at least as a consumer, uh, I have the impression that they're all trying to, there's this massification of food right of trying to sell the very same product everywhere and what they try to change is their communication but not the product so you don't say that like as much i'm sorry so as much as you see some 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 local products like to customize to the taste you kind of when you travel you see mostly the same products everywhere just with a different slightly communication strategy so you know that's a paradox as well right i think it's a big paradox but i also think that in a in a funny complex way there is no simple answer to that right so it's yeah. very difficult to paint the picture and say this is all black white whatever yeah. so i i want to offer maybe just two or three thoughts that might help everybody to reflect on this number one is i agree with you there's a there's a surface level in the food industry where um, you know, and we cannot necessarily name names, but let's say we're accustomed to the idea that if I go to America versus China versus Australia or South America or Indonesia, if I search well, I will be able to buy 
a certain brand of potato chips or a certain brand of soda uh, or or I will incur into specific brands in restaurant chains or coffee shop chains, right? And I'll go there and I'll find always the same standardized thing and all of that. Now, very true, very true. I hate to be too much of a philosopher, so let me try to be not too boring here, but because complex topics sometimes require a little bit of a complex thinking, but um, I'm under the impression, Maria, that in the present age, something is really changing. And what's really changing is that if we try to put some perspective to the human relationship with food on a global scale, it's a fairly recent phenomenon in human history, the phenomena of the globalization of the food systems, right? So prior to the globalization, literally in the time in which my grandmother lived, so something that I can remember as a human being, the system was completely different. In my part of the land, there were no supermarkets. People would cook their food. You wouldn't eat vegetables or fruit that would, was not in season. And I can go on forever. You know, meat was only reserved for Sunday lunch or something like that, or major festivities. Now, fast forward 60 years, apparently we're now in the, in the full kind of crisis of the globalized food system. And maybe we should also not forget that this is, in fact, potentially our advantage. I also propose to you and our listeners today to run a little bit of a mental exercise. Imagine that you can fly and take off from your point in history and look at your point in history, in the food history, from a little bit of more of it above than the usual. What you would see is that where we are in the history of food systems can very well be a blip. Nobody says that this is the way nature was built. Nobody says that this is society was built like this. I think we're witnessing a transition. I think we're witnessing a time in which humans are starting to reappropriate the idea of individual identities in food, of localized bioregional food systems. And this is coming from many directions, the climate crisis, the economical changes, inflation, geopolitical tensions. All of that combined is reflecting on us saying, hey, maybe I should reconsider my relationship with food. And this is where, to your point, are big companies agents of positive revolutions? Oh, come on, you know, Maria, you and I, I don't think we, we're going to be that naive and we're going to say, oh, for sure, they do it for the good of humanity. They're driven, they're driven by financial quarterly earnings projections. And that we know, they know, I don't think anybody's trying to picture the picture differently. But we also live in the world of reality. How is change produced? Maybe it's produced bottom-up. So maybe it's produced by the fact that humans are going to require different products. It was announced last week that the major supermarket chain in Italy, super traditional one, is taking 25% of the shelf space for plant-based products from next year. Why? Because they think that's where the money is going. So without sounding like a, a modern version of Karl Marx, I think we can assume that one element of change in food systems could actually be internal to the system. And that is that citizens of the world will be voting more and more 
in the supermarket at the food stall, they will be voting with their fork and plate. It's not an original thought of, from Mario, but certainly I agree with that thought. I believe that cultural neuroscience is teaching us that we were already voting the minute we had emotions for something that is part of my identity and something else is not. So how do we nurture that sense of humanity in food so that we can become the agents of that change? That to me is really the goal. And I don't particularly like the easiness of pointing the fingers and saying, oh, the big companies are trying to kill us all. Well, you know, big companies, yes, they're trying to make profits, but who's going to go to the supermarket and buy the products? Us. Let's also bring back the concept of direct individual responsibility and choices. We choose our lifestyles, or at least to a certain degree we do. That's what we should be reflecting. We can still vote with our wallet, right? <laughs> all the time. And, and, you know, maybe that's also a little naive or simplistic, but we have to, we have to promote less of a passive idea. This is a time that I think people are in need of a little bit of empowerment. I think we need to talk about food as step up to the plate. You have the means to change your lifestyle in food. And when you do that, you can change the system. Yes, you can, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, Mario, I, I, I have to ask something that uh, it's uh, a little, you know, polemic, but I think it's important. <laughs> I like it. I like it. No worries. It's important. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it should be in, in anyone that is working with, with uh, technologies and applying to, 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 to human behavior, our day-to-day -day life. We should be always asking those type of questions. So, and again, like any work evolving neuroscience, not only neuroscience, but, you know, artificial intelligence and, and, and uh, any new technologies, For uses other than medicines, in your case, when talking about neuroscience, because uh, you know, as as we talked before, it it, it was previously more used to, to labs and 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 hospitals, and you've taken that out to be applied to to the corporate life, right? And and, and marketing and communications and 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 product designing. So, like anything around that, there's always the debate around its ethical implications. And, and it's not that new, right? We, we've, there, there's been many years when, you know, I was young and went to advertising schools. There was all, already the discussion around using neuroscience for marketing and, and its ethical implications. So how do you ensure that this type of work is conducted, you know, ethically, responsibly? What steps do you take to ensure that your clients, because it's not only about yourself, but about your clients in the food industry, if, if you can ensure they are doing the same? And how do you think you could keep evolving towards the impact for good through those technologies? Well, um, again, um, several factors, several layers to the answer. Um, The first layer for me, absolutely 100% the first one is transparency. So the, the first threshold is you can work ethically with applied neuroscience and cultural neuroscience by being transparent to every stakeholder involved. So let's establish the ground kind of zero here. Obviously, we have excluded a number of applications for our technology. Uh, we have excluded to work for companies who are fabricating or making weapons. We have 
excluded to work with minors. We don't work with people below the age of 18 or 21, depending on, on the countries. But most of all, we, have, we are always communicating in an extremely clear, transparent manner about what is it that is happening. What I mean by that is that if you come to one of our research projects as a tester, so to speak, before anything happens in the room, you meet the staff, you are informed about data rights, data ownership, data privacy, you read the regulations for the local country in which you work, you have to accept those terms, you have to be aware of those terms. And then there is a whole explanation about what's about to happen, what kind of data are we collecting, what kind of technology are we using. And that happens even before anyone touches, so to speak, your head. You, nothing happens outside of the domain of transparency. Now, then there is a second layer. I already kind of touched upon it. There are specific laws about data ownership, privacy, and right of retrieval of personal data. We operate mostly in continental Europe and North America right now, and we follow the rules. GDPR is, is a very robust regulation. All of that is integral to the way we work, important to say. Then there is another layer that is the one that is really the most touchy because, you know, these two layers, let's not give them for granted, but also maybe that's not enough. How do we ensure that companies we work for are not going to make unethical use of data? Well, first of all, companies we work for declare the objectives of research to us, otherwise we cannot design the actual research intent. So there is an element of transparency between the company who is actually tasking us to do research and the actual research you do. So you do know that there's a certain research question, the research question is made known to us. And so we have an opportunity to say the use the company is going to make of this data is ethical or unethical. In case somebody is wondering whether after I complete a research, the company could use the data for something else, let's say. Well, the answer to the question is yes and no, because when you collect data in a research that is very specific to will people like the texture of this kind of meat in this kind of group of people yes there is maybe added value in knowing that for other purposes but let's be practical you can also not extend the use of that kind of data to some fancy unethical application and then there is the final final point in this whole little journey that we're taking on the topic of ethical and impact which is what you asked me when you said, how do you envision your journey in terms of impact? Well, we are trying, so I will not make false claims here, but we're trying very hard to, number one, select partners we work with based on their intent to have an impact. Number two, we are actually opening a couple of places of research, one in Italy, one in Canada, and potentially one in Eastern Europe which we intend to use as platforms to have an impact on communities, food producers, people in general, make educational content, make art, and have a broader public impact to help people think about the future of food. That is the intended direction of this company. That is the intended direction of our team. Is it easy to do? It's not. It's not. Anyone who tells you, oh, our company only does fancy things, that are, you know, that are beneficial to the planet. Lucky them, I envy them. I believe in the reality of the company. You have to be practical, you have to survive, you have to pay the bills, you have to be fair to your employers. 
and so you employees sorry so you have to make sure you pay your wages every month rightly and treat them fairly and equitably so all of that takes precedence in terms of you have to function as a business and to function as a business you have to validate your technology which means do work in the real world and once you prove you're good at what you do you have more of an authority to try to also have an impact timus has done seven years of very hard work in the gym we have gone on the ring i feel that we have won a couple of rounds and i feel that now we can start being at least talking about this you know and i think we have a wonderful team i think we have proven record and i think we have great data we are ready to have a voice and the voice is starting now that is absolutely great mario and cheering for you guys if anyone that is listening would like to get to know more about timos and the studies how how can they get a hold on you on the company well of course they can find our uh, company on the web classic website so it's www.timus which is t h i m u s.com timus.com very easy straightforward and then from there from our homepage you have all the classic links to our social media uh we're there i am personally on linkedin a lot of our staff our director of science our director of operations and other members of our team are on linkedin so you can look us up there and uh we'd be happy to always continue to exchange and uh contribute to the conversation and i also want to say it's been a privilege that you have opened the doors uh, of future hacker for us because uh, conversing with you has given us a great opportunity to expand a little bit on what we do it was an absolutely lovely conversation mario thank you so much and it's even greater to have you on board in our future hacker network so welcome on board thank you thank so you much. so much it was great having you on the show wishing you all the best thank you so much maria and Good luck with everything you guys are doing or I should say that we are doing together so Exactly. Up to the next adventure. Thank you so much. Future Hacker Life Path Future.